Greetings, nerdos, and welcome to episode 22 of 78 episodes, 30 good ones. I am your red shirt level quality host, Oliver Rockside. Thank you again uh, for joining me, and uh, we need to thank the unbelievably great Adam A. Donaldson for, for joining us last time. He was superb, and uh, it's always nice to welcome him back. But for the second time, and I do not do this on purpose, for the second time, I am releasing this on Thanksgiving Day in the U.S. It's just a happy accident, people. But I need to remind you of two points since we are debuting on uh, Thanksgiving Day in the U.S., Number one, and the most important, pumpkin pie is trash. It's a dumpster fire. Don't go near it. Again, informed consumers know the ranking goes coconut cream, uh, pecan pie, and lemon meringue pie. Pumpkin pie. When, does- when do I get to interject? Uh, not yet. <laughs> uh, and second of all, and this may be foreboding. Uh, if you get tired of arguing with your uncle about the politics, well, then you can hear us argue because guess who's on the show today? You just heard her voice. <laughs> Candace Lepage is with us. Hello, Candace. Hi. I think you you decided to share your views on pie before and introducing me on purpose. Just to see if I can keep my mouth shut. Uh, no, I, 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 we had a whole thing on my last episode of, um, uh, you're just the worst. I ended up being on Thanksgiving day. So I gave my pie diatribe then as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, pumpkin pie is actually the best pie. No, it's gross. With, uh, uh, blueberry and peach being tied for a second. Coconut uh, cream does not even come close. Oh, get out. A homemade c- coconut cream pie is fantastic. <sighs> Although I will I will uh if you just spare me on the on the cinnamon with the peach uh, pie, I'm I'm down. And I'm also down with the blueberry. Uh but pumpkin, I can't I I'm sorry, I can't agree with you, Candace. I just can't. It's 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 depressing that this divide <laughs> is within our is within our culture <laughs> the pumpkin pie divide i mean it is. i will say this whole like pumpkin spice latte business oh that's was, just out of control i was all on board with when i thought it was just coffee that was seasoned with the same spices that you put in pumpkin pie like cinnamon and cloves and nutmeg but no no apparently there's actual squash in the Coffee, also. What? Unacceptable. Just yeah. unacceptable. Uh, plus, you know, cinnamon, uh, nutmeg, and cloves are really... Well, I, I can't even have cloves in my house. Because <laughs> it's revolting. So well, maybe that's where my I won't be is. making you any traditional French-Canadian food then. Because well, that's I made pretty tort- much uh, our trinity. Well, I did, I did make tortillere for 60 once. And uh, I did have to clothes peg my nose with the cloves that went into it. So, <laughs> however, we are here to start uh, to talk Star Trek, uh, not so much food, which is every other podcast that I'm involved in involves food. <laughs> uh, so uh, we have an open face sandwich today, people, and we are going to talk about uh, two episodes. One 
I believe, is the eighth best Star Trek original series ever made. Uh, so we have that to look forward to. But of course, we have to get to our carb first. And our carb comes from season one. And you know, Candace, I... Before rewatching it, I thought, hmm, this is on the border. This is on the cusp. I, I would say this is like 31 or 32. Like, it's right. It's a tweener. It, it, it's it's really good, but it, it's just not oomph, especially compared to what we're going to talk about later. And then I rewatched it, Candace, and yeah. it's not very good. <laughs> and we are no. talking about season, seasons one, Dagger of the Mind. Candace, what was your uh, just overview of this particular episode? I mean, I, I have. I think I understand how you you got to your sort of like. It's not that bad. It it like it's at the it's at the border between good and bad because after finishing it, you can kind of look at it and go. There were some really interesting ideas in there, and there was a really beautiful actress who was well used. So there were some good things there, but God, it was just really. It's not a fun watch. It's like overacting. Like if if there's if there's a PhD course in overacting, this this is you know right on the curriculum. <laughs> this oh, is how you do well, it. <laughs> Candace and I are going to be in agreement. Sorry, <laughs> Thanksgiving goers who are looking forward to an alternate <laughs> argument. Um, because well, first of all, we have to discuss. Starfleet HR, which obviously is a disaster because <laughs> we, we have we, we have some problems that Candace and I have to discuss. Um, you're right. Morgan Woodward uh, makes an appearance in this. Of course, we've already lived through his overacting PhD in uh, the Omega Glory. He just chews scenery like crazy. And... Uh, it, it just gets, I usually love overacting because I find it funny, but this just, it gave me a headache, Candace. this overacting. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> I, a headache is a good way to describe it. I was just like, what are we even doing here? Who, wh what direction was being given? And then to read after the fact, because I always go and look up some things, the actor, uh, whatever his name is. Warren Yeah, he actually said that this was one of his most challenging roles and you know he was just exhausted and and had to take a break after filming it because it was so difficult on his mind and body and i'm like yes because you were tensing every single muscle <laughs> for some reason that i don't understand <laughs> oh morgan you're so method uh yeah no it's it's exhausting but let's get to it uh the enterprise that um arrives to del deliver some supplies like it's FedEx uh, to a penal colony. Um, I always wonder about them using the, enter the Enterprise for cargo. It's um, like, I was mean, UPS too expensive? <laughs> what? <laughs> like, yeah, their, their mission is supposed to be like discovery, science, yes. right? But yes. I guess I guess that was just outside the bounds of what the writers could think of. Yes, absolutely. So uh, they are dropping some supply uh, supplies off to this prison colony. Um, now, obviously, they and of course, we're going to talk about an episode that does use in Australia as a direct reference. But why they are devoting whole planets to a prison is 
beyond me, however. Uh, so they drop off some supplies uh, to this uh, obviously well-guarded uh, penal colony, and they beam something back up in a box that says no one should open it, yet that has no lock on it, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I found very strange. Inside the box, insert your Brad Pitt 7 joke here. Uh, Inside the box, of course, is Morgan Woodward, who is Dr. Simon Van Gelder. And the overacting commences. Uh, The prison uh, planet radios uh, the Enterprise and tells them that they are missing a a prisoner. They discover that uh, he is actually on board. And then they go through the first half of this episode is really going through Van Gelder. Just, I can't even describe it, Candace. <laughs> it's like, I, I mean, it's like he was acting a seizure, maybe? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, the first 25 minutes of the episode is devoted to that hackery. Uh, and uh, finally they get him under control and they return him to the uh, prison uh to the prison planet, and there they meet James Gregory. Now, I think this is why I thought that I had enjoyed it in the past, Candace, because James Gregory is just one of the all-time greatest character actors ever. Uh, you've seen him in everything. MASH, Barney Miller. Uh, was he in a Columbo? I don't know, but he was just... I mean, everybody was, so... Yeah, I mean, he was just all over the 60s and 70s as a character actor. I'm sure he was in Murder, She Wrote. Um, And he just has such a graceful presence on screen. Uh, He's like a calming influence, if I could use that term, because you know he's not going to overact. So that was kind of a balance to this particular episode. Anyway, James Gregory is in charge of this uh, particular penal colony, and uh, there are some weird things going on at the penal colony. Candice, would you like to explain a few of them? <laughs> um, yeah, so we're first introduced to a therapist, apparently, wearing the wildest tunic I've ever seen, um, and her incredible... Um, not remotely unsettling robotic monotone of uh, I like my job. Yes. The <laughs> famed like, what? What? <laughs> the famed Lethic uh, is the character name and she's basically an automaton. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There, there's a little Stepford Wives going on there. Oh, um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. As they continued to meet people who uh, worked on the penal colony, um, they, yeah, they were less and less, they had less agency than you would expect a person working on a penal colony to have for some bizarre reason. The other thing being, of course, that the, I mean, the, Dr. Adams, I think is his name, right? Who yes. Who was running the, running yeah, the, Tristan, the house. Tristan Adams, yeah. At this point, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, his acting was was great. He was immediately immediately untrustworthy, um, yes. which was just really well done. Like they they said it, they said this, they said it very well. Sometimes you'd think that being like spoon fed something like this, uh, you know, that the guy's bad is mm-hmm. 
is kind of yes. not good. But I, I think in this yeah. case, it actually worked. Yeah, it's very yes, it, it, it did. He's kind of a smarmy evil. Yeah, uh, maybe I, I, I could put it that way. Um, as I said, uh, James Gregory always good in anything he is. But now we have to talk about Lieutenant Helen Noel. Now, first off, Candace, when you first saw her, did you think, "My God, that's Gina Davis when she was 18? <laughs> oh no, I didn't. But oh, didn't that, I can okay. see that. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I had to do a double take. The actual actor actor's name is Mariana Hill, but she is a dead ringer for Gina Davis. Yeah, yeah, uh, I can believe that. She's very, very pretty. Um, she was well cast for um, her purpose. Oh boy! <laughs> well, we should tell her. We should tell the audience her purpose, and that that sounds terrible. And I don't. Well, I mean, uh, supposedly she's supposed to be a. She's also supposed to be a psychotherapist, which is bizarre that the ship would even have that. And why are we only just finding out about her now? Um, oh, well, there's bigger problems yeah. there. Um, so basically, basically, in the first 25 minutes, while Van Gelder is overacting his, his brain out, oh uh, McCoy and, and um, uh, Kirk have this kind of disagreement. And it, it's a friendly disagreement, but it, it, it's more of a professional um, uh, thing. And so what McCoy does to get Kirk back, how he knows this is, I don't know. Because they're bros. Does, sorry? Because they're bros. Oh, they're bros. bros. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, Kirk, absolutely bro. Uh, I, I never really got McCoy as a bro. But anyway. Um, so McCoy sends a down, uh, as part of the landing party, sends down this uh, uh, Lieutenant Noel who is had a tryst with Kirk. How McCoy knows this, number one, is beyond me. Number two, why are they still having Christmas parties in the 23rd century is also beyond me. <laughs> and why Starfleet HR ever allowed her to be on the same ship as Kirk is beyond me as well. Can you yeah. answer any of these questions for me, Candace? Um, well... I mean, the obvious answer is so that when they get into the elevator and it suddenly oh. starts moving very quickly, Kirk can suddenly grab her, which I watched and I was like, so if it had been Dr. McCoy on that elevator, which is, well, you know, what what was supposed to happen until it was like, no, send send me someone else. Like, would he have grabbed McCoy that way? That embrace for the no. fast moving elevator? No, no. Um yeah, yeah. Everything about this just screams, as you're right, like HR violations. <laughs> All over the place. Like, <laughs> and then on top of that, it also makes me think, um, hey, uh, uh, Dr. Noel, you're very bad at your job. If you think that any of this is okay for you to, you know, have have a romantic tryst, as, uh, as you say, Oliver, with the commanding officer, not just like one of the commanding officers but like the top one yeah and yeah and then uh as we carry on we can tell that obviously she still fans a flame for him and then goes out of her way to plant a false memory oh my god we're getting <laughs> we're getting to it we're getting to it her. 
the other thing is her job the other thing and i noticed this and i don't know whether i'm correct or not i will rely on your fashion mavenness candace yes uh did her did her uniform seem to be about three inches shorter than everybody else's Yes, yeah. Uh, let's yeah. see, what does it say? So, Dr. Helen Noel, wow, not even pretending the uniform is a skirt, is my, yes. <laughs> is my note. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do understand uh, actresses who show up for one episode and then off they go are probably not going to have a costume made specifically for them in mm-hmm. this particular show. Um, so she, you know, maybe had to wear someone else's. Um, but y- yeah, yeah. And you know, I mean, we all know that the women were wearing um, spanks under their their yeah. skirts uh, of the same color of their uniform as though yes. like it is actually part of the uniform. But uh, you can really tell with with this. I'm like, oh, yeah. OK, so like those little like booty shorts are are actually the uniform. <laughs> yeah, um, th- we're also going to get to the part where she is crawling around on all fours in the world's largest air conditioning duct. Um, but we'll we'll get to that. The only thing I would argue with you, Candace, about the fashion choices is that think about all the episodes that uh, that we have watched uh, where all of the garments are very structured on for the women to keep them on. So I, I think that they specifically craft each garment for each particular uh, actress. Um, so I, I think that was a that was done on purpose. I mean, yeah, it, it it could be. Do you know what though? There are times, there are certain episodes where Uhura's skirt gets shorter oh, and then longer okay. as well. So. <laughs> Okay, so we've done we've done Gina Davis, we've done uh, Fashion Police. Now we've met all the players, and we kind of all assemble on this penal colony. And uh, it's discovered that uh, James Gregory, the head guy, Doctor Adams, is using a device that basically empties uh, people empties people's brains and can be have suggestions placed into their brains to replace the information that is gone. So uh, if people try and remember their past, they are told that it is very painful to do that. This is where half of Van Gelder's overacting comes from. (laughs) Although, Candace, I am, and I may have missed this, so maybe you can correct me, but in the episode, it's never really explained why Dr. Adams is doing this. Is it? Well, I think... So what I sort of gathered was that um, the uh, so-called staff of the penal colony weren't actually staff. I believe they were they were prisoners who right. had been experimented on, and now they're just docile. And so I believe it's just to create a, a slave class. Okay, but that's never mentioned. There, we, what I'm trying to what I'm trying to assess is whether Adams really had a gave us a motivation for any of this um uh power uh but power okay okay so we've got power over let's say 500 people 500 inmates on a planet and that's it well and i think like it's just it's it's the the big flaw of science is that a lot of people go in like look at science as a a neutral field Mm -hmm. and um just think if if 
we can do it with science, then we can. Great. If we can get the knowledge, then we can. There we go. And then we have these people who take that to these extremes where it's just like, just because you can do this, you know, um, maybe it was started as an actually good sort of potential form of therapy that went too far. And now the other person's like, oh, great. Look at this. We can actually do this. That's now we can. Um, and then eventually when a person thinks that they're better than other people and that they have more knowledge than other people, and then they think that they can fix everything. So I think he really just thought of this as a way to fix violent criminals and turn them into good, successful slaves, good workers for the people. I mean, this is where I come from with the whole, like, there was some interesting, some really interesting ideas in here. I mean, this is a real clockwork orange sort of story, basically. Right. Right. right? Where it's like, even though they told it in a much shorter, less violent way and not as, um, not as ethically like questioning, but like at what point does a person's like violent tendencies and their maybe evilness divorce them from being a human and then we can safely completely change them into something else against their will. And wow, you got a lot was, more from that. You got a lot more from that than I did. Well, that that's just, why I think like I think that there's I think that there was something here. They just missed it all. <laughs> yeah, it just I, I was just kind of at the end of the episode, I was kind of going, so why did he do all of this? I mean, you've given a, a perfect explanation, but I don't think that the actual episode gave us that perfect explanation. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, so we're back to the episode now and she, and, uh, Kirk is discovering, you know, his intuition, his spidey sense is saying that there's something off, off here. And he goes to investigate and of course, he finds the room with the neural neutralizer, and uh, and uh, him and and uh, uh, Doctor Noel decide to do a little midnight run uh, to uh, check it out, and uh, they find that this neural neutralizer can uh, uh, can uh, kind of equate to uh, input from another voice. So they test this out by putting a suggestion in Kirk's mind that he's hungry. Um, and, uh, I think there was, there was another one along with the hungry one. I can't remember. It had something to do with the Christmas party, didn't it? Yes. Well, so, and I think, I think that what we're actually supposed to understand is that they didn't actually do anything she wanted to. And he said he let her on for a while and then was like, we shouldn't do this. And so she planted the false memory of them actually. Are you suggesting that James T. Kirk had ethics when it came to this particular um, thing? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to watch it closer to to decide where in her storytelling does the truth stop and her weaving some sort of suggestive lie <laughs> begin. Yes, well, they they get caught doing this, and uh, so uh, Kirk is uh, is captured, and then two things happen. Well, one happens beforehand. 
that we've kind of forgotten about because we're trying to forget Dr. Simon Van Gelder for the rest of our lives. Yes. But Spock performs the first ever mind meld in Star Trek history. Um, I believe I, I'm yes. no, because yeah, it is because uh, devil in the dark was after this. Um, so, uh, so that's our first uh, of that. And he discovers that Van Gelder used to be part of the management at this, at this particular penal colony. And he is telling the truth. So he has relayed this information to Kirk Kirk gets captured and then sends Dr. Noel, and this has to be seen to be believed, um, <clears throat> through the world's largest air conditioning duct. Uh, and of course, with this outfit on, and she's on all fours, think of the camera angles, people. I mean, I understand that the 60s were a different time, but there was somewhat of a lasciviousness, Nate, uh, lasciviousness to it. Uh, so she goes crawling through the air ducts to find, uh, the, uh, power room and, uh, all heck breaks loose and she shuts off the power. So everybody can communicate now through the shield that's been protecting the planet. Um, Spock can beam down. So there's a resolution here, but as part of the resolution, uh, Dr. Adams has been knocked unconscious in front of the neural neutralizer, which of course comes back on when the power comes on and it kills him. Uh, well, that's it doesn't so much kill him. Doesn't he, isn't he just a vegetable? No, it kills him. His mind is, was he actually dead, dead? Okay. Yes. I, yeah. I couldn't decide yeah. if he was dead or if he was just like, that's okay. Comfort. It just, it just yeah, adds, just to, adds to the questions of this episode. <laughs> Now, as I said, I before I rewatched it, I back in my memory, I thought it was like 31, 32. No, it's more like 51, 52. Is it worth yeah. a watch, Candace? Um, no, I think um, people should just listen to what I said about what the episode is supposed to be saying and then just go, yes. oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, I also, um, so besides uh, Van Gelder's uh, incredible overacting mm -hmm. um a, f a few notes so much blue eyeshadow on all of the men in this episode <laughs> like the makeup was out of control bones's blue eyeshadow was almost more than spock's and like spock's is there as i think it's supposed to be like yeah. part of his actual you know coloring as a vulcan whatever right. but bones's blue eyeshadow was out of control but the um the mind meld scene was very difficult for me because okay. um, so a lot of people know uh, a lot of people think they know about how I don't like to hear people eating on a uh, microphone mm -hmm. and then they think it's about chips and then they eat chips and they're like, Candace is going to hate this chunk, 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 crunchy, crunchy. Right. And I'm like, that's not the problem. The problem is the like wet uh, like the noises when you're eating soft foods right? and the sound like the, it was probably 80 yard. I don't know, but Spock in his mind meld um, is just repeating what Van Gelder is saying. And Leonard mm. Nimoy's voice is so quiet and all I can hear, I can barely hear his voice over the sound of, and I mean, I suffer from it as well, but the sound of like his lip moving against his teeth 
And right. it's just, it, ju- I, I almost turned the whole episode off. I was like, what? I can't just stop it. Stop it. Why does it sound like this? It was awful. Uh, oh, Candace gets, Candace gets the willies. Okay. Uh, English expression. Yes, and it's not from crunching chips, despite what okay. many of your co-hosts <laughs> seem to think. <laughs> and I don't really know why I'm like telling them what actually grosses me out because now everyone's just bound to make podcast episodes where they're eating donuts right into the microphone, but it's not the crunching of the chips. It's the- Okay, that, that's good, Candice, because I've just given them a whole mess of chips. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, the other thing from, a, from a, a production point of view, and I don't know whether you noticed this, but every time uh, there's a close-up of, of Shatner in this, there's shadow. And yeah, but I feel like they did that a lot in the. They did it a lot in the first season, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the lighting was very. Um, but it's uh, only on Shatner. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's this kind of shade window where his eyes are are front and center in the light, yes. but his yep. forehead and his in his the lower half of his face is in shadow. And I'm just wondering. I wonder if Shatner asked for that. Because it it's seems very, like something like, he would ask for. Yeah, I, I I notice it a lot. Like the lighting, I always really liked the lighting, uh, particularly on on those sorts of scenes. And in the first season, I was always sort of like, wow, like that's a really interesting lighting choice to do right. this, to just keep like the eyes and darken everything else. And I don't know if it's just, again, like are they just doing it because they can? Mm. It's it's It feels very um, theatrical. Right. Uh, even though it would be hard on a stage to, to light like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think because they can do a close up and then still give dramatic lighting the way you would on a stage. Right. It's just much closer. <laughs> so that is Dagger of the Mind. Uh, I think I'm convinced. Just listen to what Candace said to, that broke down the episode, the meaning of the episode. I don't think you need 50 minutes to go through all of that. What Candace said is perfect. We're done. I, I, I just can't. I, I would say just watch it for the overacting, but as I said, it gives me a migraine. It's just so bad. Yeah, yeah. But that's the carb. Now we must get to the protein and what I consider the eighth best episode of Star Trek, the original series. And of course, we have to go to season two, and it is the debut episode of season two. Of course, I speak of Amok Time. Now, I have an apology to make because I completely forgotten that the- Theodore Sturgeon wrote this episode. Uh, a few weeks, a few episodes back, I completely ripped the absolute piece of shit <laughs> that was. Um, oh, God, I've gone blank now. Um, the amusement park. Um. It'll come to me. Yeah. Uh, he wrote that. It was garbage. Finnegan, all that, with all that ridiculousness. Shore leave. Yes, he wrote shore leave. Yeah. And I completely ripped him apart about that because it felt like a novella, a novella to me, as opposed to a TV show. However, I have to, I have to take it all back now because he did write this. I'd forgotten. Uh, I think everybody knows this episode. It's fantastic. It's a nine and a half, Candace, to me. Uh, it gets a half mark off just because uh, 
and I, I granted I'm being nitpicky here, especially for the time in the 60s, there is a, a constant theme of women as chattel in this that is a little off-putting, so I'm taking a half a, half a point off for that. <laughs> but uh, everything else is just fantastic. And you know, I'll tell you the other thing. Everybody in this episode acts their ass off, and I don't mean in an overacting way. Like, uh, DeForest Kelly in this is especially good. Mm, yeah. Your general thoughts? Um, yeah, I would agree. It's a, it's a, a very classic episode. Um, I might give it nine and a half also, and I take that half point off because Kirk is just insufferable. Um, not Shatner, but Kirk. Like, just um, as many listeners know I, I identified as Vulcan for a very long time um, and there are still uh, many parts of that that live with me and his there's just the complete lack of respect for Spock's privacy really bothers me a lot right <laughs> um, so the particularly in the first half I was just I often watch this I'm just like I could just kill you Kirk like, <laughs> I don't understand how Spock has not, seeing as how he's currently like just a massive ball of emotion. Yes. yes. <laughs> Why he's not just like reaching out and strangling you to death? Because I would. Yeah, I. You know, I think you've got a solid point there. At some point, Spock just should have said no means no. Um, yeah. But because uh, Kirk during the first half hour of this. And you're right. It's it's Kirk. It's not Shatner. Um, Shatner is remarkably restrained mm -hmm. uh, during this particular episode. And I do want to make um, a point about Nimoy as well. Nimoy, with all that he has to do in this, could have overacted the shit out of this. And he didn't. Because Nimoy is a real actor. Uh, you know, he's... This is, it's just so disquieting, his performance. And he really conveys something that none of us really feel um, to, the, the, to the strength that he does under the conditions that he has been trained to be. Uh, it's a remarkable job by Nimoy. And as I said, DeForest Kelly is, uh, DeForest Kelly in this episode is more of Spock's bud than anything. Yes, yeah, I yeah. I love, I mean, I love Bones in general. Um, right. I love him in this episode. Yeah, because you're right. He's very much at at all points being the advocate for Spock, mm. like without needing to know what's wrong with him, like just understanding like there is something wrong, and we have to do this. We have to trust that <laughs> when he right. says I have to go to Vulcan, we should just go to Vulcan. Like right. I don't know what Kirk's problem was. No. <laughs> you just I, really uh, have to know why. But <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we have a couple of firsts in this particular episode. Uh, number one, it's the first time we see a Vulcan salute. Uh, those in the know know that this is a rabbinical um, uh, sign that Nimoy uh, discovered when he was when he was a child at, uh, at, at uh, synagogue. And um, uh, he converted it. Now... Uh, the woman who plays T'Pau mm -hmm. uh, is Celia Lovsky. 
she could not do it. So what you'll see in the shot, well, the two times that she does do it, is that she brings her hand up already formed from her lap. It's because <laughs> they had to kind of force her fingers into the salute yeah. on her lap, and then she could just raise from there because she couldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of a fun little thing. And then we have the debut of Pavel Chekhov. And oh. Candace, I know that you've met Walter Koenig. Yes. You said that he was a very, very nice man. But yeah. what the fuck is that on top of his head? What is that? Yes. Yes. Like, my <laughs> first note for this is capital letters, oh my god. <laughs> Look at that wig on Chekhov. Thank god they fixed it. Like, did they rush the first episode? They couldn't figure out what the heck to do? Like... He was supposed to know. have the shaggy, like the Davy Jones, the monkeys. Yeah, the haircut, Beatles haircut. The Beatles yeah. haircut. Yeah. Um, but wow, that was just, it was, it's awful. It's Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like... I, I always make a joke that as a bald man, I have Wigdar. Uh, but you don't need Wigdar for this. <laughs> you could <laughs> see this. nothing see no, that as a wig. No, not at all. Now. He's not the he's not the caricature yet. He, he's not all nuclear vessels at this particular point. <laughs> um, oh, I love Chekhov. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, just for those who haven't seen it, I'll just give you a very very brief recap. Uh, Spock is going bonkers because uh, he has a biological. Is, should we call urge. it a condition? I don't know. An urge. Uh, an urge. Every seven years that um, a Vulcan has to mate. And um, and they use the example of a spawn, of a salmon returning to its birthplace. Like it has a, this urge that it doesn't understand to do that. They use that as an example of this. Uh, so Spock has to go back to Vulcan or he'll die. Because um, he's he's got to get some McLovin or whatever. And... Um, <laughs> So uh, the Enterprise has uh, a, a different appointment that they have to make, but Kirk uh, supersedes that appointment by making sure that Spock gets to his home planet to kind of relieve this problem. Uh, they arrive there. Spock announces that um, he is to be married because um, his parents and T'Pring's parents, the woman involved in this, uh they're, they were basically betrothed to each other when they were seven. This apparently is how things work in uh, in on Vulcan. So he has to return and marry to Pring. That is the woman who is involved. That is her name. And uh, she doesn't really want to marry Spock. She wants to marry this other hunky guy. And uh, so she basically, um, in very, as Spock puts it, uh, very logical uh, terms decides to uh, the tradition is is that the betrothed and the challenger if the wife if the wife decides to be with someone else uh, have to fight to the death she chooses Kirk because that insulates both her hunky boyfriend and Spock uh, so if Spock kills Kirk no harm no foul um, so, uh, this is basically what it comes to what the really overarching greatness of this episode is, is it begins our journey with the culture of Vulcan. And it's so sad to me, Candace, because 
Star Trek has fucked up the whole Vulcan thing, uh, timeline since Eric Bana decided to be a Romulan. And even in the series afterwards, they've just made a mess of this. Even Enterprise, to a certain extent, made a mess of the Vulcans. Um, they were such a great, great character, and they've just been messed around so much. I mean, how many half-brothers and sisters does Spock have now at this particular point? <laughs> well, Cybok, uh, yeah. Michael Berman. <laughs> yeah. It's a mess. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean... Um, I mean, I I don't We've feel got, the well, same Ryder is younger now. It's a mess. <laughs> uh, yes, but also Mia Kirshner. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, I forgot Mia Kirshner. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, so I I do not share your feelings about um, the Star Trek making a mess of the Vulcans. I I think that they still retain. I think I think a lot of it is still there. Um, I think they've even made a lot of the lore a lot stronger myself. Um, but I, I will admit I am watching Star Trek Discovery. I'm into season two and um, oh, Spock has been, yeah, Spock has been introduced. And while I don't dislike the story they're telling, um, the, the person playing Spock or the Spock, the characterization of Spock in Discovery is not good. Um, Ethan but I Peck also is, Ethan Peck is the is the actor's name. Yeah, is that I feel yeah. for him. Like I really feel for him because I mean he's kind of given an impossible task. Like he has to he has to be Leonard Nimoy and Zachary Kinto because Zachary Kinto somehow was really good. <laughs> so now he's got these two like really good portrayals that he has to live up to. Uh, so I think he just, and the whole show is just so different. So he's just going like a totally different way, which right. is fine. It's a decision. But for me, I'm just like, it's just not, it's just not for me. Um, right. But I do still think there's a lot about the like Vulcan story and, you know, even some of it again from Enterprise, you know, from way back talking about all the like the separatists and all that sort of stuff. I think there's a lot that I think there's still actually a really interesting and good lore about Vulcans that I'm on board with. Okay. Um, I'll let that slide. That's an argument for another day. Um, <laughs> and I do, despite the fact that um, to Paul on enterprise um, was so terribly uh, sexualized on the show. I really, no, I don't. Really I don't blame. Character. I don't blame Jolene Blaylock or the hmm. or the kind of the overarching. Like I'm not holding that against the whole Vulcan storyline. What they did with the Paul. Yeah. No. I I really liked her character though, and I really liked. Um, I mean, it was very interesting because up until her uh, Ponfar was only something that happened to male Vulcans. Right. Um, so they decided, hey, now it can happen to women too. And so they gave her the Ponfar, which was really interesting. And as a woman who identified as a Vulcan, uh, I was like, yeah, I get it, man. Same thing right. watching this. I'm just like, I, I get this. And like, it just sucks. It sucks to have all these emotions and you have to deal with them. And like, they're overwhelming sometimes. And it's just like, look, I just, I just got to... Do this thing. Right. 
and I'll be better. Now, did you find that the that to bring did it bother you at all that to bring was kind of regarded as chattel? Uh, no, because she did not regard herself as chattel whatsoever. Tapring is a freaking hero. I love her. And okay. like her breakdown of what she did and why she did, I'm just yes. like, she is the coolest cat, man. She knew exactly what she wanted and exactly how to get it, and she executed it perfectly. I love this woman. Oh, I'm not I'm I'm not I'm not arguing with you about that. I I, I just think the representation surrounding her and her role was a little bit off putting to me. But again, yeah, that's me I, that's me being nit, nitpicky in twenty twenty two. Yeah, I have been um spending the last number of years uh, learning a lot about a number of different cultures. And so I've spent a lot of time watching things, watching and reading things that are from cultures where it is perfectly natural to have um, arranged marriages. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's really not, I, I mean, maybe hundreds of years ago, might have been a little more chattel-like, but uh, so was Western society. So it's not uh, oh, sure, that. Yeah. yeah. But like, there is something, yeah. Like, I, I think that there is a certain amount of value to that, and I do not. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel like she was treated like chattel, and I don't okay. feel that she felt she was treated like chattel, and I don't okay. feel that Tapau felt she was treated like chattel. She had a choice the whole time, and she right. made the choice to say no. Okay. Now, Candace, here's the all-important question. I have said that it is the eighth best episode. Do you, with this episode, go in your top five? I don't know. I had to, when you, when you prepped me ahead for this question, I was like, oh, man, I need to actually, like, figure out what my top five is. And I, I definitely, I feel firm about four of them. And there is a space, and it could be a mock time, or it could be a couple of other ones I have. Okay. So it's certainly it, like in the top like six or seven. I mean, okay. I feel sort of like I haven't watched some of these in a while, mm -hmm. so you never know, right? Your memory of something might might not be quite the same. Um, well. It yeah, yeah, it's sorry. definitely either top five or six. I'm going to say it's either going to take this five spot or it's mm -hmm. going to go right after that one and be six. Well, uh, you, the listener, are in luck because off air, because I haven't convinced her yet, um, but we're all going to peer pressure her now. Uh, we, I was planning on asking Candace back for episode 26, which will reveal my fifth most favorite uh, Star Trek ever. And now we know that Candace has a hole to fill. So perhaps we can convince her to reveal her fifth favorite episode at that particular time, because we need to fill that. Don't we now? Mm -hmm. Well, I will say of, of my list, um, two episodes have already been covered okay. here on, on the show. Okay. And there are two episodes that have not. And I did mention to you in email, I'm like, I have been paying attention for a couple of episodes to see, you know, when they're going to show up. And I'm I'm noticing they're not showing up on on the list. So I'm assuming they're going to be, you know, up in that uh, 
Okay, so that means that there may be some potential agreement along the way if Candace comes back for episode 26. That's fantastic. Well, Candace, thank you so much for joining me once again. And uh, how can people get in touch with you if they feel the need? Uh, well, you can find me everywhere on the internet at sin48, that's C-I-N-N-4-8. I am still on Twitter until the thing goes down in burning flames. Um, so, you know, find me there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, everywhere else, too. Okay, and uh, if you don't know already, you can find this show on Twitter at uh, 30 Episodes Pod. Uh, you can look that up on Twitter. You can find me personally at Oliver Rockside on Twitter as well. I have great news. You've just enjoyed uh, Candace. I'm going to try and convince Candace to return. But next time, people, guess who's coming back? They are the Nerdo Muffins. Uh, and I am assigning them the show because we now are running out of choices, of course. So I am in the assignment business from now on. And uh, we're going to talk about my seventh favorite episode of Star Trek uh, during that particular uh, endeavor. So join us next time. Candace. thank you again so much uh, for taking some time to talk to us. Uh, I very much appreciate it. Always fun. Okie dokie. Until next time, kids. Toodles, nerdos. Bye. <laughs>